Good morning, everybody. Woohoo! All right, so I, I do want to say, how many of you did the readings this week with Ecclesiastes, right? Sweet, look at that. Like this side did better than this side. Do better. Okay, so just saying. All right, so we're in Ecclesiastes, which number one makes Mark's heart very happy, okay? Now, we're not going to finish it. No, I'm just kidding. Oh, because this is what, this is a stickler for Mark. There are only two series since I've been here for 20 years that we started and we didn't finish. One of them was Ecclesiastes. Some of you might remember us doing Ecclesiastes. We got, I think, all the way to chapters somewhere between seven and nine. I mean, we got, we got toward the end. And then we did like a five-week thing of Thanksgiving and Christmas. And by that time, all the momentum of Ecclesiastes ended and we moved on to something else. And that has always bothered Mark. I mean, he just like, I can't believe we just left that unfinished. And so we get to finish that next week and Mark is going to finish it. So that's going to be awesome. Uh, the other one that we started that we didn't do was many, many years ago with Pastor Don. Uh, and we uh, started the Gospel of John and we never finished it. I think we got around chapter 12 or something like that and, and we just ended up stopping. I don't even remember the reason why, but it always stood out in my head that we didn't finish the Gospel of John. And the irony is, at the end of next year, the Gospel of John is actually what we end our five-year study on. So I'm really excited for us to be able to go through uh, those two things. So I'm, I'm really excited about today and, and what that means. When I was growing up, uh, one of the things that I was very good at was math. I was exceptional at math. And I don't say that in bragging, okay? I, I, I say that because it was the truth. I actually did math events. Did you know they had math events? Well, they do. In Texas, they had this un, uh, uh, university interscholastic lead called UIL that I was a part of. And they taught you how to do this mental math, okay? So that you could learn all these shortcuts on how to multiply, how to divide, how to do all of these things. And they put you in a place... Most people try to avoid math. I went for extracurricular activities in it, okay? Okay, that's just how insane I was. And so they would give you a 10-minute test to do as many math problems as you possibly could. My highest score ever on it, because you got five points for every one you got right, and you got a, a subtracted amount of four points for every one you got wrong. So you could get a negative number to the to the whole thing. Um they would teach you this. You would get higher math functions such as algebra and algebra 2 and calculus. Further on down the line, you got my highest score that I ever got, which was the highest easily in the district and, and might have been one of the highest in the state of Texas, was 213. I was very proud of that score. I practiced very hard to get that score. I'm at home practicing doing these math quizzes so that I can get as many as I possibly could. I answered 48 questions in 10 minutes, okay? So I'm just flying through there, right? Because they taught you all of these shortcuts. The reason I mention math is because math is something that whether we like it or not, it's fundamental. We have to have it, right? If we don't have math, let's, let's just take the idea of math away. What goes with it? You take away subtraction. You take away addition. You take away multiplication, division. And by doing so, you take away, by, by fiat, these higher math functions as well, right? And if we took math away, what all would be affected by it? Well, everything would be. If I can't do math, I can't do science. Science is dependent upon math, is it not? I can't do engineering, right? I can't build a building, at least have any confidence that that building is going to stay up. I can't do planning for things of the future. I can't do financial planning. Financial planning is pretty dependent upon math. Nobody goes into their, uh, you know, savings account and say. God, I just pray that there's money in there this time, right? Maybe some of you do. <laughs> Talk with Roger afterwards. Anyway, so um, 
I'm just saying, the idea that we need math in so many different areas, going down the road in our cars would be crazy, right? Building our cars would be crazy, would be impossible. All of these things are needed. The combustible engine, all, all of these things are needed. It's a foundation stone. So for all of you who hate math, you, you hate all of these other things by extension. Right? But I don't hate those things. How many of you like, you know, watching movies and video games and computer and all the algorithms that go into that? Uh, guess what that is? It's math. I'm sorry to tell you, it's math. If we took math away, we would be to the point of literally just praying to God for everything to hold up together like they did before all of these principles were discovered, right? Everything had a God that they they went to to hold this together. Oh, God, show favor to us because we don't know how all this works. It's really interesting Because as we begin Ecclesiastes, we're talking to Solomon at the end of his life. And if you read Ecclesiastes, it's almost got this this conversation, if you will, between a negative person and a positive person. And, And we get a whole lot more of the negative. If you read the first six chapters, you know, it starts with meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, right? Or vanity of vanities, right? Nothing has any meaning, and, and it really plums this line. And I believe it does so because we have in Solomon somebody who kind of lived on both sides of the fence when it comes to God. Somebody who's truly explored every area of trying to live life both with and without the favor of God. Early on in Solomon's life in 1 Kings chapter 3, when he attains the kingship, he is confronted with God. And God says, what would you like me to give you? And, and Solomon says, I need wisdom. I am young. And I am not able to caretake for these people that you've told me to govern over. I'm paraphrasing. You can read it yourself. And God says, what you've asked for, I mean, God is pleased with what he's asked for because you have not asked for riches and wealth and long life and all of these blessings. All of this will be added along with the wisdom that you're asking for. And so when we read in 1 Kings, all the way from 1 Kings chapter 3 to 1 Kings chapter 10, things are going really well for Solomon. We see wise decisions being made. We see the temple that that David had set aside all the building materials for, that he spends the time building to glorify God. We see the Queen of Sheba hearing of the wisdom of Solomon coming from where she's from to hear firsthand how awesome this wisdom that God has given. We are seeing the fulfillment of what Israel was supposed to be. In Solomon's kingdom. Solomon's kingdom began to be that beacon to the world of who God was. And then we hit later portions of Solomon's life. And we look in 1 Kings chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. If you have your apps. We're going to take a look at these verses from 1 Kings chapter 11. Everything's going great. And it says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as, his heart, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Astra, 
the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. And on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And he did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And if you read on in the chapter, God confronts Solomon concerning the sin. And he says, I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you, but it won't happen in your lifetime. It'll happen in the lifetime of your sons. And yet for the sake of David, I will leave Judah as a remembrance. So we see Solomon who's walked on both sides of wisdom and seen that wisdom turn to foolishness. And when we come to Ecclesiastes, we are at the end of Solomon's life, I truly believe. And we're looking at somebody looking back on what it means to live both for God and apart from God. Who has the opportunity of of looking with very clear vision what happens when you've done both. Because you will notice throughout the readings we see here, he says, you know, I embraced all of these things, wisdom still guiding me. So he, he's saying, even in the midst of when I was in disobedience, I am looking at the end result. And I believe Ecclesiastes becomes this kind of finality of conclusion, which Mark will speak a whole lot more on next week. But that's not where we begin. We begin in despair. And I find it ironic because one of the things that he really plumbs the line from is he, just like what we talked about with math, what happens when we take God out of the equation of everything? See, if we take math out of the equation, if I asked how many of you hate math, many of you would raise your hands and say that. And as soon as I start mentioning all these things that we love, maybe we don't hate math as much. Maybe we just want somebody else to do it for us, right? It's not so much that I hate math. I love math. I just don't want to do that, right? Give the engineers who enjoy the engineering that math. Give the computer technicians the ones who enjoy doing computing that math. Give give those people who love to help me with my finances that math. Me, I'm happy with plus, minus, divide, and multiply sometimes. Right? It's valuable to us. So what happens when we take everything away? I think that's exactly where we start in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. So let's look at that uh, at the very beginning here. Ecclesiastes 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Does that make you want to read more? What does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from. There they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. That's, that's really despairing, isn't it? Everything is meaningless. Everything. Generations come, generations go, nobody remembers. I mean, come on, think about it. Unless you're doing Ancestry.com, nobody knows who your great-great-great-grandfather is. I don't. I don't know mine. Some of you who like history are like, shame on you, you don't know your heritage but I don't. And I don't know who their friends were. 
And I don't know what they did in life. And the truth of the matter is, for us in this room, most of us, a hundred years from now, our great-great-great-grandchildren will be saying, I don't know who that was. Or if they they like Ancestry.com, they'll know our name. But will they know our accomplishments? Will they know what we've really done? Unless we're a builder who can put like a little stamp out there saying, boom, I built this building and everybody's going to know it. Right? I I think that's kind of what social media is all about right now too, right? Putting our stamp and trying to make sure that we make a mark on the world that somebody will pay attention to. Because otherwise it's all meaningless at chasing after the wind. And that's what you're going to hear over and over again. Consider carefully what we read in this first chapter in Ecclesiastes mirrors very much what we hear atheists say concerning those who believe in the theory of evolution being the explanation of all of life. I want to read a quote from uh, Richard Dawkins from his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life, and just listen to it and compare it to what you just heard from the first chapter of Ecclesiastes with this quote right here. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there was ever a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. DNA neither cares nor knows. DNA just is. And we dance to its music. I, I think he might have known Solomon. What do you think? We, we read... That section of his conclusion of what life is like without God. And look how much is taken away. Not just reflected in in what Solomon writes here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. This man is not writing from an ecclesiastical viewpoint. He's not looking at the Bible and saying, oh, well, look, he came to the right conclusion. He's coming to his conclusion, living in a scientific community that wants to say it's devoid of God. There is no God. All there is is random chance, and this is what we end up with, and it sounds exactly like the conclusion Solomon says we're going to come to if we take God out of the equation. This is why he starts at that point. And you'll notice the things that are mentioned within these first six chapters as we read together that are introduced. But the biggest one is this. If we take God out of the equation, the biggest thing that we lose as affects everything is purpose. The biggest thing that we lose is purpose. No reason for you to live or me to live. We just kind of are happy accidents. We weren't designed for anything despite what your eyes may see or your ears may hear. I find it ironic that a scientist can come to this conclusion. We, we look at this smartphone right here which could be defined as a dumb phone because the more dependent we are on it, the dumber we are, right? Driving to, to church today, we saw nearly four accidents. 
Every single one of them. Somebody's looking down. Like, like oh, i got to get on the road again. That's where your smartphone's making you dumb. Don't do that. But I can look at this phone right here and I could throw this down in probably the most primitive tribe in Africa. And chances are they're not going to be saying the gods have produced this. They're probably going to say, wow, somebody really made this, right? It's pretty amazing the technology that is there. It took an intelligence in order to do that. And yet within our bodies... And within just the plain, um, you know, the, uh, what, what did I call it last time I preached, right? The, the undeniable truths. I didn't say that. I can't think of it right now. Why, my brain is just killing me right now. Um, but those undeniable truths, those self-evident truths. Thank you, Lord. Okay, so those self-evident truths that show that we are designed for one another. Men and women kind of go together. And when they do, they produce something that look like men and women uh, over time, Right? Not like immediately. So some of you guys having men and women children, that, that'd be really weird. Okay, so. But you guys get the idea. Self-evidently, I can look and say that there's design in this. There's nothing that tells me that there's not design. And yet, despite all of that, we're, we're forced with, if we take God out of the equation, we take purpose along with it. And I can't make a design out of it. It's just a happy accident. That's all we're left with. And it's interesting the things that he, he points to as a result of it and, and what it actually hits on in all of these different areas. So we lose our purpose. Would you say that our culture right now is flailing when it comes to purpose? Because I would. They've, they've removed God from the larger part of the culture. And as a result... We're many years down the road of seeing this working itself out. They thought for the longest time that, that they could just be good without God. As a matter of fact, many atheists would tell you, I can be good without God. Richard Dawkins would disagree. As a matter of fact, that's what he says very clearly. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. No good, no evil. See, many atheists want to say that I can be a good person, and nobody's saying that an atheist can't be a good person, but an atheist cannot come to a conclusion that they're good from their worldview. Good and evil exist beyond it because it presupposes a purpose. And that purpose presupposes a God that put that purpose into place. So what other things are affected by it? Well, Solomon mentions these in the in this, uh, section that we read and throughout the section that we read throughout the week. One is pleasure. Pleasure kind of loses its purpose. It becomes very hedonistic. I might as well just do what I want because I'm not created for anything. So whatever I find pleasurable, I should be able to do, right? Because now pleasure has no definition. We have divorced it from its moorings. We can go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, and we can see that pleasure, as far as the idea of, let's just say, sexual pleasure, obviously Solomon definitely gave into that, right? That's one thing we can say. He explored more than anybody else. Meaningless. Worthless. Remember, this is his conclusion for these things. We take God out of the equation, everything becomes meaningless. And yet when we read in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, we see a beauty of God and sexuality that comes forth from God creating male and female. And he says, be fruitful and multiply, and there's no shame And it's a beautiful thing within the marriage relationship because that pleasure has purpose that's designed by God. And when we take God out of that equation, then all of those definitions become up for grabs. 
Just like we talked about with math. With math, you know, we lose engineering. We lose astronomy. I didn't even get to astronomy. We lose so much. You realize when we lose the definition, we take God out of the equation of sexuality, what is male and female? Our own society. You never thought in your lifetime we would be questioning it. But it's divorced from its moorings, which has made it meaningless. Think about that for just a moment. If a man and a woman are strictly defined by what one feels and thinks, does it have a definition at all? Uh, Transgenderism makes no sense under that guise. I feel like a woman. But wait a second, but what is a woman? I can't define what a woman is. And because I can't define what a woman is, guess what? What words am I saying that make sense? So I need to transition from a man to a woman. But wait a second, but man and woman is only how you feel. You guys beginning to see how this makes no sense whatsoever? And our society is falling into it more and more and more because they divorce God from purpose. And when you divorce God from purpose and you move into the idea of pleasure or sexuality, it affects everything. And there's no mooring. And so we're left to ask somebody else, well, what pronouns do you use? It sounds like a joke. And yet it's just a natural consequence of what we were told from the very beginning that it becomes meaningless when you divorce it from its purpose. That's ultimately found in God. Second one is work. You know, God's created work. We go back to Genesis. We go back to the very beginning. God placed Adam in the garden to work the ground. This was honorable. It was there from the very beginning. God designed work for man. You realize that, right? He gave them jobs and responsibility. He took all the animals and said, name them, Adam. Here's your job. You're going to name all these things. You don't like what an elephant is called? Sorry, it's his fault. But God gave him the job. And God said it was good. So I guess you're really arguing with God. Don't blame Adam. That was before he fell. Okay, so. Work is good. But work also has its limitations, doesn't it? And, and a person who removes God's influence from work is going to have a distorted view of where it properly belongs in their family, in their life, and what they consider good work to be. Think about jobs that are out there right now that are work, but they're deplorable because they're, they're apart from what God's original design is. We can talk about the abortionist. We can talk about those who, who go out and they might be crime mobs and crime bosses and the like. They have a job, but they've distorted it apart from its purpose. And to do so is to create a meaningless type of work. Nobody wants work that has no purpose in it. It needs to be working towards something. But what, what should it be working towards? So I can build enough for my empire forever? As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Solomon talks about. What if I work for all of this stuff and I don't get to enjoy it, but I leave it to my son or to my daughter, and who knows if they're going to be a fool? Isn't that a great way to talk about your kids? But he's turning around. I mean, I don't know if they're going to be smart with this, if I've worked all of it up, and if I look back, you know, uh, 10,000 years from now and realize, you know, in two generations it was gone because they squandered it all. This is meaningless. Because work in and of itself isn't necessarily supposed to build up for a posterity that lasts 20,000 years. I'm sorry. I don't see it in the scripture, but a daily provision. It's like it lasted for you and me. And when it gets distorted from that, it becomes kind of meaningless, doesn't it? It really does. 
chasing after the wind because the eye always wants more. And most wealthy people, not all wealthy people, but most aren't content in their circumstances because I have a million dollars now, but I could have two. I have $2 million now, no, I, but I could have $5 million. And we're constantly looking, and in our American culture, don't we do that all the time? Never content with what we have? Always striving for more? It's a meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It takes away the joy of the provision that God has given us. And the third thing that we talk about in this, this passage is this idea of justice. That there's no justice if there's no God. Whatever happens here just kind of happens. And you're stuck with the results. You got a bad lot in life? It stinks to be you. It's kind of, kind of the answer, Right? Oh, I'm so lucky. No sicknesses, nothing really bad happening to me. Isn't that great? Hitler comes around, kills 6,000 Jews, 6,000, 6 million Jews, 6 million others. Stinks to be them. Think about that for just a moment. Because what justice is there? He got to do everything that he wanted to do. And even at the end where he pulled the trigger on his, on his own life, right? He still got to do that on his terms. Because when you take God out of the equation, there is no justice. Why not just do whatever it is that you want? Why should you and I complain about anything for that matter? Why not treat each other however we wish to treat one another? Because as long as we get away with it, who cares? The whole idea of justice is predicated upon an unmoving standard that is going to someday be held accountable by the face of God. And if it's not, there's no justice. I I think that that's Dawkins' conclusion, right? Blind, pitiless indifference that the universe has for us. Because when you take God out, you take purpose out. When you take God out, you take pleasure out. When you take God out, you take work out. When you take God out, you take justice out. And everything becomes meaningless. I believe right now in our culture, more than ever before, and I think all of you would agree, honestly, we're on the precipice of seeing that meaninglessness work out, aren't we? It wasn't like this 20 years ago or 40 years ago. It really wasn't. No matter who says that it was, it was moving in that direction, and they, may, they were very well right, but we're starting to see the really terrible outworking of what life is like without God predominantly represented in our society. And it's an irony because it was not the intention of our founders to be that way. They understood the importance of having God as the foundation. That's why in our Declaration of Independence, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that we are created by our Creator. All men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and governments are instituted among men to secure those rights. In other words, the rights doesn't, don't come from the government. The rights come from the Creator. They come from God. And if you read the founding documents, you read our founding fathers, the idea that it is not profoundly Christian, you can't come to that conclusion. I'm sorry. You just can't. John Adams simply said this, our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Because our founders understood that if you take God out of the equation, the morality in which God has placed within man that has that fixed point of reference with him goes with it. It's like taking math out of science. I don't like doing math, but I love science. doesn't work. 
I like engineering. I like building buildings, but I don't like math. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know what kind of building you're going to come up with. It's the same principle. I'm going to take God out of this equation and try to be a moral people. Because right now, the world is castigating Christians concerning their morality that doesn't match up with the world's morality that has been unmoored from God and something we no longer recognize. As a matter of fact, they have no justification for their morality other than they want us to be nice and let everybody do what they want to do. But why? When you take away God from that, you take away all meaning from that. And we're seeing that worked out. It's, it's been academically there for years, but now it's working out in the public square. And we have a world that is devoid of purpose. And the more they garner after the things that they think they want, the more purposelessness, the more purposeless they feel, and the more hopeless they feel. Jumping back to the whole transgender issue for just a moment. You guys realize that those who participate in transgenderism, reassignment surgery, getting everything that they want, have suicide rates just as high, if not a little higher, after that surgery has taken place? And those rates, around 40%. They get everything they want and they're still miserable because they're denying the very purpose for which they were created. Now, I don't say that in struggle to anybody. I say that in identification to recognize that if we don't align ourselves for which we have been created, we're left with a meaningless world, a meaningless life that leads us to meaningless things. And some people stuck in that, realizing that, drive themselves crazy and kill themselves because they just want it to end. This world needs hope. This world needs a purpose. It can't be done without God. Can't. Not shouldn't be. Can't. It's impossible. And it's why we see this answer to this initial question that we see in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 3. So what we see with Solomon is is he talks about the meaninglessness of life without God. And and we've hit on these issues right here. But he rebuts it throughout, right? He rebuts it throughout. Chapter 3. Should have some Beatles music going on right now. A bird? Sorry. My bad. thought it was beetles. All right. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. A time to embrace and a time to refrain. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on men. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also said eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I know that there is nothing better for men than to be happy, to do good while they live. That everyone may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all of his toil. This is a gift of God. And I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that men will revere him. Whatever has already been and whatever will be has been before. And God will call the past to account. 
And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. Did you notice the difference between those two passages and how they paralleled one another? The one from Ecclesiastes 1 that made everything meaningless. Everything kind of goes on and on and on and on. And who cares? Because if there's no God, there's no purpose. And if there's no purpose, all those things that we do to make life livable, pleasure, work, justice, don't really have any ultimate meaning. And yet we see this rebuttal in chapter 3, which I just love, right? That there's a season for everything that God has placed under heaven. And we see God as the focal point. That when we add God back into the equation, everything has meaning again. Our work has meaning. There's nothing better than for men to enjoy the work that they do. This is a gift from God. How different is that from the world that just says, what am I working for? What am I doing? How do I know that I'm handing this off to children who are going to squander it? To a world who doesn't know what they're going to do with it? No, this is a gift of God. And nothing can be more pleasurable than to do the things that God has, has had us to do, has created us for, that he's placed eternity in our hearts. And even though we see wickedness in, in the courts of both the righteous and the, and the wicked, we see unrighteousness happen, we know that God is going to bring to judgment those things. So guess what? Even justice ultimately is done at the throne of God. And it provides meaning for everything in which we're living in this life. And yet, you and I, living in a culture that we do today that has so much to offer, we are perpetually tempted to cut God out. We're perpetually tempted to cut God out. Everything is more important than focusing on our relationship with God. Our time in fellowship together, encouraging one another in this place together, ebbs and flows way too much. Yes, I'm calling you out. Because we're called to be in this place together. When we divorce ourselves from the fellowship of believers that encourages us in our walk with Jesus Christ, you know who we're depriving? You're not depriving the body, which you are depriving the body. You're depriving yourself of the purpose in which God created you. To be in community. It's one more choice that I can just forget God again. I can do something else. I can watch my football games. I can go to this thing. I can, I can be out of town or whatever. And so what do we see? We see great movement. It used to be that coming to church was something what was kind of expected thing to do. We're, we're going to meet together. God's called us to meet together. We're going to be here on every single week. Right now, Barna does studies. And literally, a faithful Christian now doesn't have to come every week. A faithful believer in Christ, and we're not talking sickness. I'm not even talking vacation. Talk about the choices that you and I make that undermine the purpose of God in our lives. And the only place you're going to get that encouragement to continue to walk with God is among the fellowship of believers in Christ, and you're depriving yourself of that. I know I'm speaking to the choir because you're all here. Except for the ones who aren't. Maybe it's your three out of four weeks to be here. And you're planning on taking next week off. Let me tell you something. I believe in the fellowship of believers. I'm going to use myself, which I don't, ne- I don't try to do very often, as an example. I come up here every single week and we tell you to love God, love God's people, love serving God. I have been, ever since we made that phrase, and love God's people is in life groups. 
I have been in life groups for 14 years straight since we made that phrase. Not a break, unless our life group took a week or a month off or something like that. 14 straight years. Why? Because I believe it. Because I believe it's God's word. I believe it's something we are supposed to be doing. Not just when it fancies me. But because we're called to be in that, in community with one another. Far too many of us make it an excuse. It's just something we do if we have time. If it fits within our schedule, we'll do it. Instead of understanding that God wants us to do that because that's part of our purpose together in growing in discipleship and going out and making disciples of others. Haven't stopped. 14 years. Every week. Doing it again tonight. Anybody wants to come? Five o'clock, my house. Seriously. You're more than welcome. If we have 40 people there, we'll figure something out. Why? Because it's important. Because I made a commitment to God to grow in my faith in Jesus Christ and not make it an exception to the rule. You guys realize I've been on two sabbaticals by the grace of God that I've been allowed to do, where I've been gone for 12 weeks. Do you know where I went to church those 12 weeks? Both those times, here, every week. You know what I did during my sabbatical? Both of my sabbaticals, I went to life group. Why? Because the purpose of those things remained. didn't matter about my job and my job description. So you're a pastor, so you could take a break from that. No, this is a command of God that we meet together. It's a conviction of God that I do that. I would not be reset in my faith if I'm going to just say, I'm taking time off. I'm going to treat church as this kind of unclean thing. No, that's not what I needed. I needed to be in fellowship with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How would it have been any rest for me to go someplace else to build a relationship with other people to have them pray for me when they don't know me? We start divorcing these purposes from one another and you don't realize it's divorcing God from those portions of our life that he wants impact in. I have been much better off because I've been in life group for 14 years. Sometimes leading, sometimes not. I've been much better off being here every single week that I can be. I don't miss church unless I'm on vacation and we're out of town. I don't miss it. And if I'm in town, I absolutely don't miss it. Not because I work here. But because it's been created for a purpose to encourage us in our walk with Jesus Christ. I can't divorce it from its purpose. Because when I do, it's one more thing that divorces me from God. And we have so many things that do that right now. You want a more committed world toward Christ, it starts with a more committed Christian. It just does. And I'm calling a lot of you out, and I know it. You know why? Because I care about you. You know why? Because I've been doing it. I'm not saying do what I won't do. I'm doing what I've been doing. Because I believe it to be true according to the word of God. And I don't want to divorce it from its purpose. You want to grow in your faith? Get into fellowship. Make this your commitment. Because we're going to encourage you toward that end. You want to grow in your fellowship? Get in a life group. Because God has called us to encourage one another and to walk in faith. You want to grow further still? Start serving in the church and use your talents, gifts, and abilities and stop being a spectator. Because these things are called by all of us according to the word of God, his purpose that he's established for us growing in our discipleship to one another. I don't want you living meaningless lives. So stop divorcing God from every area of it. That's the words of Solomon. That's the words of God. 
may that find a place in each and every one of our lives. Because we're living in times that want to drag us away. And ultimately does from our purpose. And God doesn't want that for any of you. Not for any of you. And neither do I. Stand together. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for today. I want to thank you for our time that we've had together. As we explore the idea of a meaningless world and and exactly what you bring to it. You bring purpose. Purpose for our pleasure. Purpose for our work. Purpose for justice that you see meted out that ultimately was on the cross and will be at the throne room of heaven at the end of time. Until then, you've given us a job, O Lord to meet together, to encourage one another, to bring people into this glorious hope of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would start with us, with our commitment to you, dear Heavenly Father, to not let the world further distract us from the purposes that you have created. I pray in the name of Jesus that you will help us to strengthen our resolve in you, strengthen our purpose in you, that we might find meaning, the meaning you want in our lives, Lord, to realize that you are enough and that what you've done in Christ is enough and that we can rest on that no matter what the world says because what they offer us is meaningless. It's meaningless. Help us not fall for that, that trap, dear Heavenly Father. Give us the ultimate purpose and meaning found only in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, and help us to walk faithfully in Him. In Jesus' name, amen. So what you're going to do this week is a question, right? My prayer is that you're going to go out and live for Him like you never have before. My prayer is that you're going to offer meaning to those who need God. Those of you who are hoping to be nice to other people, realize what they need is God for purpose. Being nice isn't going to cut it. Invite them to church. Be here at church so that you can help those that you're inviting or help others who are being invited to see Christ in you. Other than that, go out and just be a witness for God. Live for him this week. If you need prayer, our elders will be up front praying. Otherwise, God bless you. Have a great week and a week of purpose, I pray.